0: Hey everybody, it's Liz, and here's the lineup for the Popping Callers franchise for the month of August 2020. Betsy, Greg, Ricardo, and I talk time travel with a conversation about all of the possibilities and pitfalls of traveling to the past. Take 2 features the return of Holly McHale-Larson discussing the influx of live-action Disney princess movies. Betsy and Greg review the film Glory in this month's Going on 30, and also, don't forget, you can vote for our Going on 30 awards by going to our website, popandcollarspodcast.com. Shayna Watson and Gray continue to boldly go through six episodes of Star Trek on The Sacred Six. This month, they're exploring the classic episode, The Devil in the Dark. Finally, and this is very exciting, Ricardo and I are hosting a brand new mini version of the Popping Collars book club at the end of this month. Join us for our end of the summer reading suggestions. Thanks for listening and keep those collars popped.
1: Hi, I'm Richard Lindsay, the godfather of popping collars, and you are listening to Popping Collars.
2: Welcome to Popping Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of religion and pop culture. I am your host. My name is Greg Knight. I'm the director of children and youth ministries at the Church of Bethesda-by-the-Sea in the epicenter that is Palm Beach, Florida. With me are my co-hosts, Betsy Carmody. Betsy, how are you?
3: Greg, doing all right. It's still summer vacation. Will the children come back to school? I don't know. But we have planned for it a lot, a lot, a lot at the Episcopal High School, which is where I work as head chaplain in beautiful Alexandria, Virginia. So if we get to welcome the kids back, we're ready with cohort <laughs> groups and Episcopal Brandon Mass and, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. So we're, we're ready if we're going to get to do it. So that's how, many,
2: how many letters of plans do you need as a school right now? Like, do you need plan E-F-G-H <laughs> Like at this point? We
3: are nimble, we are flexible, and what if we've learned nothing in the spring, it's how to pivot, Greg. We can do it. That's
2: right. We've also got Liz Easton. Liz, how are you?
0: Hey, Greg. Doing okay. Coming to you from Omaha, Nebraska, where I serve as canon to the ordinary for the Diocese of Nebraska. And I'm kind of at like peak coronavirus fatigue, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, I've kind of hit a big wall, and uh, so I'm just... uh, naming that for other people who may have hit a wall. I feel like when we talk about people burning out in the midst of this or having a hard time, it's either like you don't talk about it cuz everyone's having a hard time or you talk about it in a cute way. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, look at this cute funny thing I'm doing because I'm going crazy. For me it's not cute. It's not cute. It's um this has just been a really hard time. I think I'll get through it. I mean I I'm, I'm confident that I will. But tr- but truthfully, this is the hardest season i've ever had professionally i'm sure that that's true for almost everybody
3: there's a cycle that we use in education and we kind of talk about the after the peak of expectations on this cycle the 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 curve drops very low and we enter into what is called the trough of disillusionment which i feel like some days i just want to wear that shirt because that is where i am i am (laughs) deep in the trough of disillusionment so i feel like i feel you
2: sounds like a world of warcraft expansion package Thank you, Liz. I appreciate that. I know I'm, I feel a lot of that too. So thank you for naming it. Ricardo Avila
1: is also here with us. Ricardo, how are you? Hey, Greg. Well, I'm sort of along. I think I've met Liz at that wall. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, in a different way. But uh, I think that there's a tiredness. I, I will say one of the, one of the troughs of disillusionment in my life is uh, that next week would have been the Dickens universe
4: Mm. at Santa
1: Cruz, which we haven't missed for a long time. And uh, we were going to discuss my favorite Dickens novel, uh, David Copperfield. You know, we knew since February that it was canceled, but there's something about there's that inner pull of the 19th century. Like it's, it, it will be, it will not be appeased. Other than that, I'm the rector at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in lovely Los Gatos, California.
2: We've got a bit of a concept show this month. This one's a thinker. We're talking about time travel, but not time travel movies or TV shows or anything like that. Rather, we're talking about where we would travel to if we had our own time machine or the lessons that can be learned from revisiting the past, or even the dangers of how we can be stuck in time loops that we don't even realize we're in. So where are we going in our way back machine? Maybe one of us is going to go to 1969 to be one of the hippies in the crowd during the first Woodstock concert. Maybe we'll take the opportunity to see key moments in human history from a different point of view, or perhaps we will relive the thrill of reading A Tale of Two Cities as if it were the very first time we had ever done so. That one yeah. may be specific to a Dickens Universe member of our panel. So, what are you going to do with your imaginary time machine and why? Let's go to the bag. Magic bag. will point us to, wait, me. Oh, my. Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, well, I'll lead the way then. I am taking my time machine, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take myself as I am right now, and I'm going to go back to November 1993. On that date, I'm going to attend the unplugged concert that MTV did with Nirvana. Ooh, good choice. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so
2: here's why. Because whenever I think of time travel stories, I think of regret. Um, it's usually like folks go back in time to fix some wrong that's happened or um, something's sort of off. And so someone travels back in time to see if it can be repaired somehow. And I'm not saying that I would go back in time and like save Kurt Cobain or Thing like that. That's not the kind of regret. It's not the kind of regret I'm talking about. The kind of regret I'm talking about is when I was listening to Nirvana in 1993, I was a young teenager. And the thing about young teenagers is that you're trying to figure out who you are. I'm looking at who my friends are, and I'm taking a little bit of that. And I'm looking at who my family is, and I'm taking a little bit of that. And I'm looking at cultural influences that are around me, and I'm taking a little bit of what they're giving me too. And the thing about Nirvana, when I was a kid, listening to their music was that they were so damn cool. They were just cool. Kurt and Dave and Chris, they were cool. And I wanted to be cool. I desperately wanted to be cool. And when I was listening to them, I thought this band is going to be making music for like my entire life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be listening to this band forever and ever. And six months after this concert, it's over. Like Nirvana is done. And so the reason that I would go back as the person that I am now to 1993 to watch this concert is because I would like to see it as I think what it actually turned out to be, which is a finale in a way. It it has, it rings like a final concert. And I'm that's not to say that I think that i'm in kurt cobain's head and like i i think that he's thinking about the end of his life or anything like that it's just the set list the song choices the lead belly song that closes the show where did you sleep last night and kurt is screaming the final lyrics and he takes this deep breath and he stares into the camera and he has like this lost look on his face like a final moment. And I would like to go back and experience that concert as a final moment, recognizing it for actually what it was, rather than sort of thinking, oh, this is a live concert in the middle of what's going to be a ton of Nirvana stuff down the road, I'm sure. So-
0: that is a great album. I still listen to it a lot. Sometimes it just hits the spot. I mean, they were a loud Rock band of you really young men, and in that setting, like Kurt Cobain had a beautiful voice. he just had perfect pitch, he had a beautiful tone, like super emotional um they rounded out that band with a bunch with a lot of other pieces, and mm-hmm. that was a great album,
2: yeah, a few things stood out to me, like about the show itself, one is that. Kurt would always play his guitars. He was left-handed, but he would always play his guitars upside down and restrung like Jimi Hendrix like Jimmy did, Hendrix, yeah, which I thought was great. And, um, and just to speak to your point, Liz, he was a huge Beatles fan and he wanted to sing like John, like he wanted melodies like John Lennon would write uh, in his songs. And I think he really did tap into a lot of that sort of Beatles spirit of like, like we can thrash, but we need a really good melody to go mm-hmm. with like, whatever this chaos is that we're creating on stage. The last thing that I would say is that, you know, I was just thinking of what you were saying, Liz, about this COVID thing. And honestly, like God knows, like a lot of the anxiety that I have around it is sort of this sense of mystery and not knowing like what's going to come, you know, and just not having that kind of foresight, you know, available to you. And the reason that I chose what i chose for the time machine is because like because we have 30 years of hindsight we know what that concert actually was and so we we know what was changing or what was about to change there are parts of me that really want it to be 30 years from now so that we know how covid has changed our church because it's going to be changed and what we think is what we think are the things that we're going to live forever in our ministry like some of those things aren't going to live forever
0: this is mm, the very hard. thing that keeps me up at night is um, trying to make decisions that will set the future church up for success. And I feel frustrated because I feel like I'm looking around and I'm not hearing a lot of, we're going to have to let <laughs> go of so much. Yeah. And all of the grief that's wrapped up in that, I appreciate that people are just not there. We can't, you know, those conversations are too difficult to have, but it's terrifying to me.
2: All right. Next up, we have Liz Easton.
0: Oh, my gosh. So, full disclosure, I did not know that this was the topic exactly. I thought that we were talking about if we could go back in time to re-experience a pop culture thing for the first time. (sighs) Uh, I don't know. I thought that, that was a good question. Yeah. So, just, I, hey, Liz, I
3: think this topic was a little all over the place and I think whatever you really want to talk okay. about, we can make work. Well, I
0: posed it on my Instagram stories. You can follow me on Instagram at Liz East and it got a lot of great qu- suggestions and it was everything from food that people wanted to taste for the first time. Again, um, people, someone said Disneyland, which is totally fun idea to go to Disney for the first time again. And a number of folks said, um, the Harry Potter books. So that was kind of how I was thinking. And one person said um, that they would go back to the last day of school or the first day of summer when they were little kids. So they took it more as a personal thing. So I'm sort of combining those things, I think, in my um, just very personal, not historic, well, semi-historical season that I would return to which would be the summer before I went to college and the, and the beginning of my time in college. And the only reason I want to go back is that as I get older, I'm aware of how um, significant that time was for me. And I don't, I wouldn't want to go back in time to experience it again, to change anything, but more just to be a witness to myself for myself. As I went through that time, if that makes sense to like help my younger self hold the place for all that happened there and harry potter figures into it so the coronavirus does let me spin you a tale i graduated from high school in 2001 mm-hmm. I was in love for the first time with my first serious boyfriend. I won't name him here. I doubt he's a podcast listener. Just the most wonderful first relationship you could ever have. But we went to separate colleges, so we decided to break up. So that summer, he went to college before I did. So I was left back in Seattle getting ready to go to college. So first great love, first great heartbreak. Boom. Like Those are super significant Many people know I'm not ashamed to say this on the on the podcast. I threw up in an elevator
1: that summer. Oh. <laughs> I missed that episode. I
3: didn't, know, I didn't know this was a hashtag of yours. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of this.
0: And I feel like it's, this, again, I would just tell my younger self, like you're so wound up that I worked in this big office building at a law firm and my boyfriend had just went away to college. I was as heartbroken as can be. And I got into the elevator. I worked on the forty-second floor. I got into the elevator, and it starts just like zooming right up to the top of this big high-rise. And there's a woman on the elevator that I work with, and she goes, "Oh, honey, I heard your boyfriend just moved away." <laughs> <And I> just
2: <laughs> Wait, tell that. me you didn't throw up on the lady. No, <laughs> <So> I
0: threw <just laughs> up on the lady. I just barfed on the floor. And now, in retrospect, I'm like, I'm sure that they all thought I was hungover, right? But I was heartbroken. Like I was not hungover. I was just this tightly wound, heartbroken
3: kid. This is Seattle. This (laughs) sounds like a Grey's Anatomy episode. Anybody else? Like you know. But then it's something else. There's something else broken inside her. And (laughs) Meredith Grey's gonna fix it.
0: That's right. Just a broken heart inside this little, this little shell of a 19 year old. And then um, 9 11 happened. And I remember people saying, "Things will never be the same. Our world will never be the same." And as a young adult, I remember thinking, like, how can that be? Like, it doesn't seem like this could be so cataclysmic. It doesn't seem. um, Sure enough, that was true. Everything did change. Everything Mm -hmm. from the way that we travel to um, how we think of the world and our place in it, how we understand our safety, just everything changed. And then I went to college. and Here's where Harry Potter comes in. But somehow I had the first first book, like a paperback. And I like brought it with me to college. Someone must have given it to me. I had no intention of reading it. And those first weeks in college, I stayed up late, like under the covers, like a kid reading those first Harry Potter books and just finding such comfort and magic and escape and meaning making, like it's a very meaningful story um, in those stories. And it really kind of helped me through And so I've been thinking about Harry Potter some during this time. I don't have a a whole lot of attachment to rereading them now, but I can imagine that, like, if there was something like that for me in this season, like, what a wonderful distraction that would be. It was such a significant time in my life. And in the midst of it, I had no clue. Mm -hmm. And um, so there is a part of me that would like to go back, not to be that person again, but to stand alongside that person. And be like, just, you're going to be okay and just cherish this and feel mm-hmm. it all. You're fine. You're going to be fine. So that's the great story of the year it's 2001 great. in the life wow. of
2: Wow. <laughs> Whenever I hear someone's stories, it's the threshold stories that ring the most to me, I think. Whether it's like going to college or getting married or having kids or, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is that folks are doing. I love that. I love this image of, like, tightly wound list. Because, <laughs> because, like, so many of these threshold moments, I know that for me, I would always g- come up to one of these things and think, okay, this, one, this one's it. On the other side of this, I'm going to be an adult. I'm going to know what I'm doing. I'm going to have a plan. Like, you know, like all of this stuff. And it's just the same me that's just going <laughs> through, like, yeah. all of these different things. And there's no, like... Switch that makes yeah. you, you
0: know. And the me who threw up on the elevator is the same me who who wants to throw up in meetings all the time today,
3: which <laughs> just doesn't manage. <laughs> you know, which, which you may want to get Meredith Grey to look at at that. Okay.
1: <laughs> there right. could be something there. You <laughs> might there. want to
3: take a look. There could be something
0: there. There could yeah. be something
3: going on.
1: <laughs> yeah! Wow.
0: My all my feelings live in my stomach, which I think is not unusual. And yeah. like, and physiologically, yeah. a lot of like, there are a lot of nerve endings in your stomach. So well, it's
3: that it's that when um, Jesus comes and Lazarus is dead, right? Like the way his upsetness is described as he was disturbed in his gut. In his gut. That's yeah. the Hebrew word. So Splunk yeah.
1: in his face.
3: There we go. Thank you. Wow. For that. Someone went to seminary. <laughs> <laughs> one went to That's seminary.
4: <laughs>
0: I almost said I'd like to go back in time to seminary and actually do all the
1: reading.
3: You can do all know. the reading. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I love reading. I understand. Do you love I read? oh,
1: <laughs> my gosh, That's yeah. great. Awesome. You know, it's funny. You talk about Harry Potter in times of crisis. I, I have been listening to the audiobooks in this time and early on, it just came up somewhere. It's like all oh, the Harry Potter, or the first Harry Potter book is available for free on audible, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And so I listened to it and I real—I was very conscious of the fact that I was doing it because I was like, this is a stressful time and I want to re-read, if you will, re-hear these books. And I'm on book five now, The Order of the Phoenix. Oh, and it really is working. It really takes my mind off of things. I can listen to it at 1.25 speed on the Audible and catch all of it. So interesting that you had Harry Potter in your time too. Yeah. Thank
3: I'm going to be very careful. The next time I ran an elevator with you.
0: I was like the receptionist at this law firm that summer. So I was the one who had to call the building crew to say that someone threw up at the elevator. Yeah. And I just said, I heard someone threw up in the elevator.
3: <laughs> 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 the elevator number four. I don't know. I mean, I, mean, I can, I can picture you, <laughs> you in a, in a chunky shoe. Yes. Um, uh, Doc Martin.
0: Dark, dark,
3: yep. dark pant with a, maybe a boot cut. Uh-huh. Collared shirt. College Doc shirt, Martin. maybe yeah. a little, a little blazer. I don't know, or a sweater. Or like, it's the no summertime, blazer. you know. The summertime, yeah. <laughs> but Seattle. Did you I just hoping you to first... throw up on your Doc Martens. That's all I'm saying.
2: Next up
1: is Ricardo. Oh. <laughs> okay, so my thing—I actually, I think I sort of did the opposite of Liz in a weird way. I'm not going back to a certain time of my life that was poignant for me. I'm going back to a time that I lived through, maybe more like Greg. I don't know that I wasn't, I was aware of as really momentous, but I was too young to understand what was going on. Uh, I want to preface and say that if I were talking about books that I wanted to go back to, I would definitely want to go back. And I'm, I'm talking about, uh, I'm, I'm doing the Stephen King 112263 thing mm-hmm. where. You know, he went back to like 1958 or 57 to lead up to 63 and the assassination i'm taking a six or seven year chunk of time so okay. i would go back to like the 1840s and 50s when uh dickens novels were being released in serial form and there was so much excitement and i would live in london and i probably wouldn't be latino but, you know i'd be a wealthy aristocrat or from a-
3: spain you're from spain i don't I'm know from
1: spain that's what it is but, you know, they were so excited. Like when uh, um, Old Curiosity Shop first came out in installments and they were sailing over to the U.S. with boats that held the next installment, there was a cliffhanger about Little Nell, who was one of the beloved characters, and they were shouting from the docks, is Little Nell dead? Has yes, she died. Like they couldn't wait to get it. And it's like who's from- <laughs> got Exactly. And so that excitement, about the next installment of something that maybe they didn't know how great this was going to be considered later by people who have a discerning taste in literature like me. Uh, But it would have been really fun if it were books, but I didn't choose books. If it were music, I think I definitely want to be in the years like 1977 to like 1984, Because I would have loved to have seen the Talking Heads in concert. I would have loved to have seen the Smiths in concert. I would have loved to have been steeped in that. um, I can't even think of what it's called now. Not the new wave stuff, but the um, there was punk and then there was post-punk, I guess. And some of that other stuff. It just seemed like such a rich... Amazing time, and when I was living through it, I was listening to like Sticks and Dario Speedwagon, and you know, I didn't know any of this stuff. I barely knew Bruce Springsteen. I was a, I was not a cool high school kid, but I'm choosing this is a long intro. <laughs> I know, we <laughs> like, still,
2: still in the intro. You've yeah, significantly enough? built this
1: up. <laughs> the, the, the time that just like for whatever reason just like really pulls me is like the year 1974. I would want to watch the TV of the time.
4: Well, the in the
1: All in the Family, MASH and the Mary Tyler Moore Show, when they were first out, there was just something about TV back then that I know now was sort of groundbreaking. And there were, sort of, there were things you really couldn't even watch on TV now. And some of that is just, you know, what the critics have said. But when I was eight years old in 1974, seven and eight years old, um, I knew something was up with like Watergate, right? Watergate was happening. And Vietnam was happening. And my parents were immigrants from Mexico. So they didn't kind of have a sense of what was going on as much. I mean, they did and they didn't. And so I would ask my older sister who was like 17 years old at the time, my oldest sister. And I was eight years old. I remember having a talk with her. She was trying to take a nap on the couch. I can picture this. I said, like, what's Watergate? And she was like, oh, it's this thing about the government. I don't I don't remember what she said, but I was like, I didn't understand. Well, why? And and then I, I remember I was like, okay, and now who was Hitler? <laughs> she was like, I'm taking a nap. Let's go away. But there was like, there was this desire to know more about the wider world then, I think, but not the capacity to take it in. And, and But I think there was something about the time and the feel and those early 70s groundbreaking sitcoms and Mary Tyler Moore's kind of unique brand of cleverness and how she was this sweet person who was trying to make it in a in a city and people were cynical and sarcastic, but she kind of kept to her heart of gold for whatever reason that time calls to me, but I don't want to have the eight year old mind. I want to have the mind I have now, but be eight years old and have that inquisitiveness and that sense of wonder and knowing that something really important is happening around me, but also sort of have the knowledge to be able to understand it. So it's not so much about me as it is about like, I think it was a real kind of juicy, if you will, time uh, in our nation's history. I love it. That's my pick.
3: Hey, thank you for picking the year of my birth, Ricardo.
1: That's another reason.
3: What a what a cesspool of darkness oh. I was born into, everyone. Like, you know, they I'm thinking my mom, better. my mom would tell me stories. She's like, Oh yeah, I was born in October. So she's like, That summer. I just I was really pregnant and the Watergate trials are on. I just float in a pool. I'm like, I don't even know what this pool <laughs> was. She's just like, I'm just trying to like keep it together, you know. But mm-hmm. yeah, like I think that element of being when I think about that year, it's like, this is the year I came into things, but I'm so shaped by my parents seeing the parents around me were so shaped by all those things that you were talking about while living in a Southern city in a very different context than what you were experiencing in Milwaukee, which is fascinating to me, but.
2: I totally uh, empathize with this pick. Ricardo. So I grew up, I was a UHF kid growing up. It's, it's one of the reasons why I love, wrestling because wrestling was always on like channel 48 or channel 45 or some one of those crazy upper dial channels and uh but the one thing that they would always show on uhf was like jefferson's reruns and all in the family and good times and Mm -hmm. um sanford and son like all of that stuff was always on chico and the man was always on like the upper channels you know and um And I would just chew through that stuff. And you just hope that like in the divided media world that we have now, where you can basically choose what you want to watch, that people choose to diversify their taste a little bit.
3: Yeah. I mean, without, you know, yes, I agree. The upper channels have those things. And if, and if you were fortunate enough to have a cable a little bit in there, Nick at night, like to Mm. not have Nick at night, like I'm thinking about all of those shows that made me curious about the black experience, curious about different socioeconomic experiences, curious about different cities that felt very compartmentalized than my own. The, the, the composition of them, the themes of them, the, they are foundational in some of the things that we still watch now. It's like when Carl Reiner died, right? I was like, oh, all these things. that made, your, your pick made me think of him too, Ricardo.
1: Right, right, yeah. Dick Van Dyke. You know, it's interesting. I think as you guys were talking, I realized one of the things about these shows is they they felt sort of more raw or Mm -hmm. real. I mean, whatever that means for TV, but like now things feel so structured and slick or produced and yeah, lotioned up. And um, back then, I mean, granted there were some scenarios, but you know, Sanford and son, you know, it was like a, a junkyard and, it was humor within a context that was, um, you know, people live those lives, and and it is it is fantasy because it's TV. But like good times, especially. Um, that was the South Side of Chicago, or yeah. no, it was Chicago somewhere. It was
3: Chicago in yeah. the
1: Projects, and I remember watching that, and um, we had just moved from Chicago to Milwaukee, and everybody in Milwaukee was watching Happy Days because that took place in Milwaukee. <laughs> and talk about a contrast. So like oh. they were on. For a while, they were on at the very same time, and it was like, "Did you watch Happy Days? Did you watch Happy Days?" Like, I watched Good Times, and I knew then it was more Ooh. socially conscious than that '50s kind of.
3: That's a whole and,
1: nother show. We,
3: <laughs> oh my gosh!
1: And they were hilarious. Can I just do one joke? Oh, never mind. It might be sexist, actually. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, because that's also the other thing that we can learn <laughs> from watching all of these shows contextually.
2: Thank you, Ricardo. Betsy. You close this Ooh,
3: out. What is it? your
2: time take?
3: Because I for? also was confused by <laughs> the topic.
2: The topic um, was wide ranging. The topic was pretty open ended. It was
3: wide ranging. So I'm like, you know, maybe I'm going to pick, you know, I'm going to go back in time to April 5th, 1980, and I'm going to go to the abandoned St. Mary's Church in Athens, Georgia, and see the first REM concert. Like, I was like, what are these things that I would kind of step into right like that that plays on all of my like wanting to be a progressive southern person like who's into music and into things that feel like they matter and you know the mystique of athens growing up in birmingham and being only six years old when this concert happens so i am not attending this concert but loving this (laughs) band for a long time. I was like, well, maybe I should just do that. But then I'm like, I am going to stick with what I was originally yeah. going to talk about. I can make this work because the part of the problem is the thing I'm gonna talk about is I have become one of those people that now can't stop talking about the wire. And that's who oh. I've become, and I'm gonna own it and it's okay, right?
4: So your boy's name is what? Snot. You call the guy Snot? snot boogie. Yeah. So, who shots not? I ain't going to no court. I'm saying, every Friday night, we're in the alley behind the cut ring, we rolling bones, you know? I mean, all the boys from around the way, and we roll to late. Alley crap game, right? Like every time, he snot, and fade a few shooters, play it out to the pots deep, snatch and run. Every time? It couldn't help himself. Let me understand you. Every Friday night, you and your boys would shoot crap, right? But every Friday night, your pal, Snotboogie. Boogie, he'd wait till there was cash on the ground, then you'd grab the money and run away. you let him do that? Man, we'd catch him and be his but ain't nobody never go past that. I gotta ask you. If every time Snotboogie Boogie would grab the money and run away, Why'd you even let him in the game? What? Mr. you always stole the money. Why'd you let him play? God, this America, man. So I would time travel back to two thousand two, three,
3: you know, two thousand two to two thousand eight, which is when this show was on. I do not know how I did not watch the show. It was helpful because I did just finish the audiobook of All the Pieces Matter. It's a great book. It's 12 hours. I think I finished it in three days. Wow. It is so good. all the behind the scenes with the cast and the crew and the creators and the writers and everybody. I'm sad about missing the excitement and the water coolerness of it. I mean, there was an element of if you were, I think in particular, it was interesting in the book talking about if you were blackened into the wire, if, if you were whitened into the wire, if you're black and into The Wire, you are watching something that is for for many people of color watching it described what they grew up in, things they were familiar with, people that they knew, um, and the the wide variety of blackness that is in The Wire, mm. and seeing an ensemble cast that is so diverse. And then for white people, it became oh, I know stuff and read stuff and like like things that are smart. That became a lot of the white audience that found the show and then stuck Mm. with the show. It makes me sad for the blind spot that I missed the show when it came out. But now I'm realizing in that way that if we're going to talk about this in a groundhog day kind of way, or being trapped in a time loop kind of way, all the pieces still matter. It's all the same stuff that we're dealing with right now. And it's in this show, right? The book comes out right after uh freddie gray's death and the response of baltimore to that and now we're finding ourselves in this time a black lives matter time george floyd time breon taylor uh elijah mccain and we are we are living these same cycles again and the the lack of filter on the show the misogyny Mm. the homophobia the racism it allows you to see and I, i wonder whether it would be the same show if you took a show and traveled it through time and tried to move it to now Right. Right? I don't, it couldn't be the same. It wouldn't be the same. But having creators behind it who have lived that life, either reporting on it, policing it, teaching it, living it. There was this quote today. So I was listening to the final hour on my drive down here to Durham. And uh, Ed Burns, who's one of the writers, creators who worked as a police officer and then worked as a middle school teacher in Baltimore and his experiences, he shares this idea that he kind of pulls from a Dietrich Bonhoeffer idea, you know, that idea is if you get on the wrong train, you know, running down the aisle backwards is not a solution. You have to get off the train. Uh, And when we talk about, you know, Liz, you were talking about the things that we kind of have to blow up, right, to actually change. And, And the reform the police, you know, defund the police is not a thing that was happening when this book was written, when the show was done. But um, he goes on to kind of say, we created these programs back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, 90s that were the wrong programs. That's our train. We tinker with them, but the problem's way back there, and we're not getting off the train. There's this whole idea that the war on drugs, the longest war with the most casualties that this country has participated in. We keep doing the same stupid things, and our great hope is that now in this context that white people are dying of heroin, that we might do something, which they won't. And the thing is we are not willing to get off that train because we're all experts on that train. Mm. We step off the train and now we have to open ourselves up to the problem and rediscover it. Now we're no longer experts. That's not
0: a good metaphor for the church. Right. Right. Yeah,
3: everything
1: for everything,
3: every, you know, societal construct that we are confronting in this time of having to sit with ourselves. It's felt like I've found this at at the time I needed to when I'm in the midst of all of this reading I've been doing this summer and all, you know, it's just it is just and now I've become that person who I try to bring it up and weasel it into every conversation (laughs) I have. And I'm also sitting here going, Greg, you are complicit. We were in seminary together. We both had TV. That's yeah. how we became friends in seminary. Uh-huh. 2008, that final season's airing, my friend. Uh-huh. Not yep. a word. Not I'm walking, a word.
2: I'm walking oh, to Dan J.S.'s play, class in a daze <laughs> because of the finale. <laughs> no, it's – um no. Uh, and I'm glad that you bring it up because um, – Eric Matoya said something really wonderful in our revisit of The Wire uh, last month, which you can go back and check out, which is that this is a document of urban America. This is, this is, a, this is a novel about urban life in America. And it's set in Baltimore, but it could be set in any city. And that's the majority of the American experience is urban settings in America. And this is, this is a holistic look at what's happening in our cities, and exactly right, how we we know this train that circles this place so well that we're, we're not going to change it, even if it creates cycles of violence and addiction and poverty and oppression.
3: That and that, And you're exactly right, that element of getting off the train and that things are going to have to break, and that's kind of what some of my mantra that I've been saying over these past few months is that this is all going to have to break so that we can't put it back together again the way it has been, because that was not working. It has to break so that we can create something new. And that, that, I'm not saying that's not painful, and I'm not saying that's not hard, and I'm not saying that's not co- you know, challenging and indicting and all of those things, but that it is, it, is, it is holy work.
1: So there's pre-wire reality and post-wire reality, it sounds like.
3: Well, and it feeds into some of the things that I've been reading and digging in, and all of that over this past several months.
1: Nice, wow, that's a that's good, um, good topic, Greg. Ooh. Yeah, well, I
2: think we've encountered a lot of thresholds uh, along the way, and none of us threw up. So
0: that's right. That's good. Wow, that's,
2: that's progress. <laughs> Well, these were all really good choices, so I'm going to go ahead and get to work on making that time machine so that we can make (laughs) some of these things happen. In the meantime, you can find Popping Collars on the web at poppingcollarspodcast.com. We're on social media as well, but since those websites are actively trying to destroy our society, let me promote something we're doing instead. Liz and Ricardo are going to present a special mini version of our popping collars book club later this month they're priests (laughs) and they read books and you'll want to read one too and of course you can get our podcast in whatever podcatcher you use be sure to hit subscribe or follow so that you don't miss an episode finally you can find our show the longest running Episcopal podcast trademark
1: in history
2: (laughs) on Episcopalcafe.com we love Episcopalcafe.com we know you will as well Check them out for all your Episcopal news needs and beyond. And with that, that is Popping College for this time. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Ricardo. We'll see you next time and...
3: Keep those collars popped. Pop, pop. pop.